Hi, I'm Jack Norton, and you're listening to Policy, Guns and Money. ASPE's annual Bathsheba Dialogue was held recently with the Begin Sadat Centre for Strategic Studies in Tel Aviv. The talks showed the growing depth of the Australia-Israel relationship, especially in defence cooperation. But this year's dialogue also focused on the Iran nuclear deal and the threat felt by many in Israel from Tehran. The dialogue also covered the similarities in Australia and Israel's relationships with China, looking at infrastructure, investment and interference. But first, for an overview of the bilateral relationship, where it stands and where it might go, I spoke to one of the Australian delegates, former Labor MP and Shadow Assistant Minister for Defence and Cybersecurity, Gabe Rotman. Okay, thank you for joining us. Delegates at this year's Bathsheba Dialogue came up with a lot of ideas on how best to improve uh, and deepen the Australia-Israel relationship. Was there anything in particular that really stood out to you that you think is a priority for that? There are a number of priorities. I think that the engagement, greater engagement and cooperation on the defence research front and a number of participants put that up as an idea for future discussion for the next 12 months and also possibly for an agenda item for the next dialogue. The greater engagement between the IDF and the ADF, I, I, I understand that there has been some uh, cooperation and dialogue going with between those two militaries, but uh, I think that the impression I got was that we need stronger engagement uh, in a, an official capacity. That was the language that was used. And so that that stood out to me. Also, the thing that really impressed me was the suggestion, for, again, from a number of the participants that we need to increase the engagement on sovereign capability. As you know, the Israelis are very committed to sovereign capability. Uh, they've invested in it since the beginning birth of the nation. And so I do think that we can, uh, I think Australia can learn a lot from uh, Israel in terms of enhancing our sovereign capability across a broad range of areas. And so I do think there's real opportunity in those research areas in terms of the IDF, ADF engagement and also in sovereign capability. In, in terms of that self-reliance, I guess, that, th that, as you said, has been around since the founding of Israel, um, there was some talk in the dialogue about building a defence industry and the expectation that in doing that it's a long and painful process and there are going to be ups and downs. Do you think there's something in that for Australia in that we shouldn't be expecting things like the attack class submarine program to necessarily be a linear upwards traje trajectory of a new capability and maybe be prepared for some failures or cost overruns? Well, these Israelis have a very high risk appetite. They have a far higher risk appetite than we do, and that particularly comes out in their um, defence science area. They have a chief defence scientist who I understand has about half a billion dollars each year to play with, and uh, the investment he makes investments in a broad range of areas in terms of startups, in terms of innovative areas. Just you know, it's it's sort of an ideas hub. And that, that despite the fact that um, it is a significant sum of money, they only basically reap the benefits of about 25% of that investment. I can't imagine the Australian people, and I've, being a former member of the Public Accounts and Audit Committee, I can't imagine the Australian people and also the JCPAA and also possibly the Parliament would have that level of tolerance for uh, risk uh, in terms of return as well for their investment. Uh, so, yes, the Israelis do have that much higher risk appetite and, uh, and do have a higher risk tolerance uh, if they do see 
see it benefiting the nation in terms of uh, the, the creating this sovereign capability and enhancing their national security. I think the risk appetite is different here. Uh, I think that and and also at the parliamentary level as well as the sort of the the community level. And so it's going. It will be interesting to see where we go in terms of um, what the government will do in terms of sovereign capability from the subs and and other investments. But we do, in my view, we do need to enhance that um, our sovereign capability across a broad range of areas. And in terms of that high tech aspect to it or high um, advanced research, Israel is obviously a world leader in cyber technology. Do you think there are opportunities for Australia to learn from that startup culture? I, I do think we've got a lot to learn from them in terms of perhaps upping our risk appetite. I don't know whether it will be as high as theirs, but if we do want to be a nation of innovators, if we do want to have a startup culture like they have in Israel, then we do actually have to up that. Israel is different in a number of ways in the fact that they do have this very high risk appetite or this risk tolerance, but also also the fact that they've got the IDF, which is this breeding ground for so many startups. Uh, and through that, the IDF, uh, through the, the compulsory military service that they have, they and also through uh, some very sophisticated ways of linking into the schools, they actually breed this talent in innovation, this talent in cybersecurity, this talent in technology that basically comes from the high school level, feeds through the IDF, is basically channeled into particular directions from the IDF. And then we've heard that uh, a number of uh, of people who've come out of the IDF and been channeled through these particular cybersecurity programs and innovation programs and technology programs, then go off and set up startups and, uh, and become multi-billionaires. So, that model is, is very different from here. So I think that we can look at it and see how we can adapt it to Australia because it is quite different. I do think there's a lot we can learn in terms of feeding through the schools and encouraging then wetting that appetite for cybersecurity careers, for innovation careers, for technology careers through high schools. And I think there's more we can do with the, with the Israelis in terms of looking at what we can do at the that high school, secondary school level, possibly through the tertiary level as well. But the IDF does sort of create this other sort of opportunity where they can operationalise a lot of the theory that they've been learning at high school and then they can apply it in the IDF environment. Uh, and so, and we just don't um, have that sort of conduit. And so that's why we do need to create something. But there's a lot we can learn from the Israelis in terms of cybersecurity. There's a lot of delegations that go to Israel to talk startups and to talk about developing this innovation culture. It can't be directly translated, but I think that we can actually pick elements of it, pick the eyes out of what could work here. And I don't think that we're doing that as effectively as we should be. There was a lot of a focus uh, during the dialogue on Australia's relations with China, Israel's relations with China, the overlap between the two and the debate between prosperity and sovereignty. Did that level of similarity surprise you? It was useful, really useful having a separate session on it. We've never actually had a separate session on, on China before. And uh, we touched on it last year in the dialogue, but this is the first year. It was a, a, a really useful session and many of the participants said that they would have liked to for it to have gone longer or perhaps have a whole day on it. So uh, there's opportunity there for the future. But uh, I... 
I think that China is now registering with the Israelis. I think uh, Haifa Port uh, definitely uh, has has got it on the radar. And uh, and what well, the presentation by one of the the speakers that highlighted the increase in investment, one thousand seven hundred percent between yeah between twenty twelve and twenty seventeen. So it's significant. And just going through the detail about what they were um, what the Chinese have been investing in. So it, that was a really useful session and. Uh, and I think that there's real opportunity for us to have further discussions on it uh, because Australia has, you know, we've been talking about this for some time. I think that the Israelis are just starting to talk about it now. I mean, there are those who have been, who are experts on it, who've been talking about it for a while, but I think that it's just starting to register more broadly now. Now, while we were in Israel, uh, the government there announced that they were going to form a committee to look at foreign investment uh, from a national security perspective. And that was something that surprised me that wasn't already being done there. Do you think there's opportunities for, I guess, the Israelis to learn from how uh, the experience with Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board has changed in the last few years? Yeah, there's plenty of opportunity. And again, that was touched on uh, in the dialogue and also was one of the uh, areas, future areas to explore for cooperation. I think that uh, the Knesset can learn a lot uh, from Parliament in terms of what we've done on foreign interference. And because uh, I think that Australia is, has sort of been at the forefront of a lot of this. And so uh, yeah, I think that Israel is now coming to terms with it and what it means for their um, national security and for critical infrastructure. And and I think that, they're, yeah, they're, that is an area for future cooperation and yeah, Israel can learn from us on that. As a former MP, what does that sort of Knesset parliament cooperation look like? Well, there's an Australian-Israel parliamentary friends group and uh, we tend to have conversations with members who are coming over to Australia or, or senior business people. Uh, but I think that it is probably more that parliamentary friends group can play a significant role in that because the relationships are very deep. But also possibly this committee coming to Australia and talking to um, the intelligence committee, talking to other members who have uh, talking to the government about this. I think that uh, committee to committee, the intelligence committee to this committee uh, would be a useful uh, conversation. There's a role for that parliamentary friends group to play as well as the intelligence committee and other committees. And just finally, you've been going to this dialogue since its inception. How has it evolved and changed and have you seen a deepening of the Australia-Israel relationship in that time? It's, it's evolved significantly uh, in the last five years. I was there. I'm a veteran now. I've been there from the start. <laughs> in the past, particularly the early days, it was there was more there were conversations about our areas of strategic interest, but there didn't seem to be as much convergence as I would have liked. And last year, we started to get an element of that convergence and this year even more so. So and I, I, that's why that, those last two sessions, uh, on one on the defence cooperation and then that exploration of where to from here and where we can work in terms of the relationship and the dialogue in the future, uh, that was a really useful session because we traditionally haven't had that and so we've had a great day of dialogue and discussing a broad range of issues in the past, but there's it hasn't sort of been that thread drawn through the dialogue and in terms of what to where to from here, in terms of what next for the dialogue, in terms of what we can do over the last 12 months, uh, be it through uh, ASPE and BESA or be it through the government agencies to work on uh, enhancing our cooperation. Gabe Rodman, thanks very much. Thank you. 
Emily Landau is an expert in nuclear arms control and I spoke to her about Iran, its nuclear capabilities and the regional security situation. I, I wanted to start by asking, I guess, a basic question for our Australian audience. What is the status of the JCPOA currently and is, it, is some sort of deal still salvageable? Well, the JCPOA still exists because uh, the fact that the United States left doesn't mean that the JCPOA is over. And as long as the other actors are behaving as if the JCPOA is still there, including the fact that Iran is violating the JCPOA, it means that it's, uh, it still exists. In other words, it, it, it's, it's an agreement among the parties that negotiated it. So it's up to them to say whether you know, they're, they're still committed to it or not. And so far, aside from the United States, they all remain committed. Uh, surprisingly enough, Iran is committed. In other words, it's breaching the deal because it's trying to get a certain message across. Uh, specifically, I think, to the Europeans, you know, this is what we can do. We can uh, heat things up. We can start uh, maybe enriching uranium to 20%. We can do all these things, so please help us with the Americans to get sanctions lifted, because that's what we want. But they're not indicating that they actually want to leave the deal. And I think the reason is that this is the best deal they're going to get. If things go to another negotiation, it's only in order to get a deal that will mean that Iran has to make more nuclear concessions. So they would prefer for the JCPOA to continue. So people say it's uh, dying. People, some people say it's dead. It's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's there as it was a year ago. But if it's not achieving the stated aim of stopping Iran from developing a nuclear capability, is it worth anything? And should there be a new deal, so to speak, well, that does do that? Well, that's a different question. And I think for sure there needs to be a new deal, regardless of whether they're violating it or not. There needs to be a new deal because it's, it's, a, it's a very flawed deal. It has serious flaws that have serious implications. And it certainly will not stop Iran from becoming a nuclear state. In the best case scenario, it will delay that prospect. But it won't. It won't end or prevent Iran's ability. Certainly, after many of the provisions sunset or end, um, to move to a nuclear weapons capability. And just as as people have sort of professed the death of the JCPOA, people have also professed the, uh, the failure of Trump's maximum pressure strategy. But. You've written that it's not necessarily been a failure and it might be too early to call because it's still underway. Well, right. I think we're still in the process. So I'm a little bit surprised by those that are already claiming it to be a failure. Um, when the Obama administration was engaged in a very similar dynamic back in 2012 with the biting sanctions that led to the beginning of the negotiation in 2013, but to a more substantial negotiation only in 2014. You know, nobody was saying, wait, the biting sanctions have failed. They haven't gotten the negotiation started yet. It was clear that there was an aim here and things were moving in that direction. And I think right now, of course, it's more difficult now because we're already after one negotiation, one bad deal. So, you know, every time you try to 
correct the situation, you sort of, you, I mean, the international powers are in a worse uh, position. Um, but things are moving in, I would say, a non-linear fashion, maybe a messy fashion. They are moving towards a negotiation. And so I think as long as that's the situation, it's way too early to, to make that call that it's, uh, that it's been a failure. Plus the fact that the very fact that we're even discussing a negotiation or possible negotiation is indication that it is uh, it is at least succeeded in that because otherwise nobody would talk, be talking about renegotiating the JCPOA. Everyone would be celebrating the fact that Iran is uh, upholding its commitments, everything is fine, you know, and we can continue to ignore this uh, this threat and, uh, you know, continue on our merry way. Um, but you've also written that Trump, under the strategy, has started to maybe make a couple of mistakes. Yes. Uh, could you outline what the, what those have been and what he might do to rectify the course? Well, okay, so, so there's two stages, really. The first stage is to get around to the table. Second stage is to negotiate effectively. Um, and in terms of the strategy for getting around to the table, I think the Trump administration went on, you know, they, they adopted the correct strategy because we know that pressure is the only thing that has had any impact on Iran's decision making in the nuclear realm. So, you know, if you want to renegotiate this deal, Iran's not going to do it, you know, of their own free will. They, they don't want another deal. They, they're fine with this deal. And so either you convince them with uh, inducements, but in the past, inducements have been proven to be quite ineffective. In other words, Iran pockets the carrots, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be serious negotiators. Or you put the pressure on. And uh, when Iran is pressured, especially if they sense that things might get out of hand and pose some kind of uh, threat to the regime, uh, they will come to the table or they will change uh, course. And so I think it was the correct strategy and it might bring them to the table. But once they're at the table, you enter into a new stage with, with its own set of rules. And you need to understand those rules. You need to understand what type of negotiation this is. You need to look back at how Iran has negotiated from 2003, what their tactics are of, you know, playing for time, etc. They have many uh, negotiating tactics. Um, and, you know, uh, understand what situation you're in. And one of the important things not to do is to show an eagerness to enter into this negotiation. Because the minute Iran senses that the other side is eager to get a deal or that the only way they can uh, achieve their aims is by getting a deal, a deal that Iran doesn't want, doesn't need, uh, they can exploit that. And, and Iran has done that very effectively in the past when they notice that the other side is uh, very eager to get to a, a result. And we saw this in the negotiation over the JCPOA. So Trump needs to understand that he has to avoid doing that. He has to understand that he's not in what I would call a normal negotiation where, you know, you have a political uh, issue between two countries 
and uh, both have an interest in resolving the situation. And it's a question of the price that each side has to pay in order to reach a resolution that will serve the interests basically of both sides. A good example of this is the negotiations between Israel and Egypt over the peace agreement. Um, Egypt understood, Sadat understood after the 1973 war that he wasn't going to get Sinai back through warfare. Uh, Israel, of course, was interested in uh, reaching a peace agreement, so there was a common aim. And the question was the price, and the price became for Israel to return all of Sinai. So that's like a normal negotiation. This negotiation is not of that type. It's a hard bargain. Um, there's really no win-win solution here. E either the Iranians are going to come out on top, or the other side is going to come out on top. And, and the international powers have to ensure that they're the ones that are going to come out on top. And to do that means applying pressure, compelling Iran. It means understanding that this isn't about, you know, some kind of, well, both sides have an obligation to make concessions. No, uh, the, the international powers have to be uh, very stubborn, just like the Iranians were back in 2014-15. Uh, very stubborn and not to move until the Iranians start making the first move. Uh, and, and it's a very hard uh, negotiation to navigate successfully. I'm not underestimating, you know, belittling the, uh, the challenge that's involved here, but it's not gonna work unless these things, these basic uh, things are understood. Now, Trump has already demonstrated eagerness. So that's already a mistake. Uh, he uh, indicated that he was willing to accept uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, plan or proposal to give Iran $15 billion in credit just to come back to the JCPOA, to stop violating the JCPOA, which would be a huge win for Iran. Um, so being willing to, to, to consider that favorably is indicating to uh, the Iranians that the that Trump is uh, blinking first, that Trump needs this win, this foreign policy win, maybe for elections purposes, you know, to show that he's the great negotiator for whatever reason, but that's not the way to handle this kind of bargain. So how then do you get the Iranians back to the table if you've got the options of sanctions, uh, economic pressure? Trump seems to be ruling out any sort of military option at the moment. Uh, notwithstanding positioning of forces in the region, that sort of thing. What's the trigger for getting the Iranians back? Well, I think one thing that's missing in the equation, first of all, a credible military threat would help, because that would be an additional lever of pressure. But there's also political clout, you know, that could work. And, and here, if there was more unity among the international powers, I'm not expecting anything from Russia and China, but I do have expectations from the three European states that were part of the P5 plus one talks. Um, they know that the deal is flawed. They know that pressure is the only thing that might work. Um, they so dislike the Trump administration and, and, and also they want to advance their economic interests with Iran. So they're not willing to join the pressure campaign. I think if they did, this would have an impact on Iran because one of the things Iran has been trying to do over the past years 
is to deepen the divide between the United States and Europe. As long as these powers are divided, that that's a win for Iran. Um, so I think it's imperative to do everything possible to get um, useful conversations going between the Americans and these European states, and not in the direction of proposals like Macron's proposal, but really proposals that talk about pressuring Iran and joining the pressure. And there were certain indications at certain uh, junctures that the that the Europeans were going to be a little bit more tough. But always when push comes to shove, when Iran actually started violating the JCPOA, rather than saying, okay, now's when we're going to go for more sanctions, they said, well, these are only minor violations. We can live with them. So that those kind of political dynamics are something I think that really need to be uh, worked on in order to give this more of a chance of succeeding. Do you think in that case, just as a final question, that means there's a, I guess, a collision course, uh, ultimately, unless there is some sort of international deal reached that uh, Iran will stop developing any nuclear capability, that outside of that happening, there is a collision course between Israel and Iran to some sort of conflict. Well, it could happen. I don't think uh, Israel or Iran really want to see that military clash, even though things have heated up and, and you know, there are various assessments that things could easily move to military confrontation, not necessarily because of the nuclear issue per se, but what's going on in the region, which is connected to the nuclear uh, issue, but not entirely connected to the nuclear issue. Um, you know, we'll have to see. Again, it's it, it, it's hard to say, but but I can say I'm skeptical. You know, whether is Israel doesn't have some magic wand that will make this problem go away, and it needs cooperation of other international powers. It's the responsibility of other international powers. The Iranian nuclear crisis is not really an Israeli problem. It's an it's a problem of international security. It goes back to the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, um, and so it shouldn't be regarded as an Israel issue, even though our prime minister has <laughs> has taken steps that make it seem like it's Israel's uh, problem. It's really a global issue. But the question is, you know, there, there was talk now in in the conference about uh, the new world order or new world of uh, disorder, maybe. And there's a real question whether in this world there, there's political will to do what needs to be done. Is we'll have to deal with the implications of Emily Lando, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. And for more on Israel's relationship with China and some parallels with Australia, I spoke with Yossi Melman, a journalist who broke the story of Israel's first defence technology deal with China back in 1979 and has covered the issue since. Thank you for joining ASPI and thank you for speaking at the dialogue this morning. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts about China's uh, engagement in Israel and perhaps where it's at now, but also how it has changed in the last years and decades. Uh, Israel was at sleep for two decades um, without realizing the Chinese became um, entering the Israeli market 
It's mainly uh, civilian infrastructures, but they are also related to this security and military uh, arenas. Um, like in other parts of the world, the Chinese were offering workers, equipment, uh, good uh, prices, and the Israelis, like maybe other Western nations, fell into that trap. Uh, and in a way, it was like a honey trap. Um, they, they, they have the, the Chinese have the expertise to dig tunnels, and we need the tunnels for our uh, newly built uh, Tel Aviv underground. So let's have him. Let's have him. Uh, we need a, a, a port uh, to modernize our port in Haifa, in the north of the country. The Chinese gave the, uh, there was a, uh, a tender. The Chinese gave the best uh, offer. So the Ministry of Transportation said, yes, why not? And slowly, slowly, we found ourselves suddenly one day waking up to the fact that the Chinese are controlling so many infrastructures and strategic sites in Israel, power stations, ports, food, agriculture, light trains and underground trains, and they're building roads. And, and still there was no serious debate about it, uh, despite the fact that at least our domestic security, uh, security service, the Shin Bet, was trying to, to make the government aware of the danger, but they didn't listen. And then came Trump and his trade war with China and the problem with the Huawei, with, uh, with uh, communication, G5, and all these issues, and Trump is pushing now Israel uh, to do something about it. So if you can tell me a timeline of over what period did this happen, because we've had a similar debate in Australia, um, been bubbling away for the last several years, but it's only been in the last maybe three to four years that it's really become uh, a key part of the public discourse. It was previously in security agencies under, uh, under wraps, I guess, but for it to be now in the public consciousness, it has been for the last maybe two or three years. How is that situation in Israel? Do average Israelis, are they aware of uh, the extent of this in investment? Uh, what do they think? It's something similar, actually. Uh, there is a great deal of parallel because for two two decades, nearly two decades, they 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 set their foot in Israel. The Chinese, there was no debate, no discussion, not only uh, in by, by the government or government agency, but also in the in the uh, among the general public and the media. Only in the last year and a half, suddenly the media is talking about it. Um, uh, modestly, I was the first one to to, to write an article which which was aimed to to grab the uh, the the headlines and to uh, to make the public aware of it. Uh, and what was that uh, subject of that? About the Chinese involvement in Israel and how the security services demand to put an end to it or to regulate it is neg is is uh, neglected uh, is avoided no one listens to the security services um, so now there is a greater awareness but still because of our unique situation uh, still there is no decision 
and the cabinet is kind of toying around the issue, is uh, is trying to avoid it because Israel find, uh, suddenly has found itself um, squeezed in the middle, trapped between two superpowers. On one hand, we want this Chinese investment, which is relatively cheaper than other um, uh, offers and proposals from other countries. And we don't have this expertise to, to, be, to build and dig tunnels, for example. Um, and that's on one hand. On the other hand, we understand that there is a risk to our national security uh, and to strategic sites. And also, uh, we, we, do, we fear that the United States, Israel's largest, uh, best strategic ally, uh, would be very upset. They are already upset. And they are saying, telling Israel, do something about it, do something about it. But still, there hasn't been a decision to regulate foreign investment in Israel. Uh, you know, in all Western countries, they don't talk about uh, to regulate Chinese investment. They talk in general terms, generic terms, uh, about foreign investment. We know that it's mainly against the Chinese. And so do you think the debate in Israel will lead to the introduction of rules? We talked uh, about the Australian experience of changes to how the our Foreign Investment Review Board uh, now considers national security a much higher priority when making decisions. Is that something that you think will happen here? Well, if we have a government, a permanent government, at the moment we, are, we have a government in transition, which may last for another six months until another round of elections. But we, if we have a permanent government, I believe eventually they'll pass either a, a bill, although I doubt it very much, but they'll try to, to issue some decrees or to, uh, to, to, um, to establish a review committee which would deal with each um, large investment in strategic sites. But whether it's a bill or decrees or a review body, they cannot deal with the past. Uh, so you, like the Port of Haifa, for example. The Port of Haifa, you can, you, of course you can cancel the contract with the Chinese, but then you will upset the Chinese, they'll be very angry, and we had already such a, a, a precedent. In, in 1999, the Israeli government signed a huge, for Israeli, uh, in Israeli terms, it was a huge arms deal with China. We sold them two early warning, airborne early warning uh, systems uh, for $1.5 billion. Dollars. In 2001, we had to cancel the deal because the Americans said, no way, you are not going to sell these airplanes to China. They, they, use, they would use it against us, the, um, America. So Israel had to cancel the deal. The Chinese were very, very angry about it. They demanded a huge compensation. And eventually we paid them almost half a billion dollars in compensation. Well, they gave us an, an advance, so we had to return the advance and to compensate them. So there is no way to cancel the Haifa deal. Now, the Haifa deal is an unbelievable, stupid decision by the Minister of Transportation because it's the main port for our submarine fleet. Uh, they're going to, to maintain the port, not only to build it, 
they have the concession to run it for 25 years. And then they're building the underground line here in Tel Aviv, 200 meters from headquarters of the Ministry of Defense, our Pentagon, uh, the headquarters of the military intelligence, and, and the seat of the chief of staff. Um, do you think, has there been any cases that have come to light so far, um, such as we've had in Australia, about domestic political interference in terms of seeking to influence politicians? We've had cases in Australia of large cash donations being made to our political parties, um, cash left in a shopping bag, for example. Um, has there been any cases like that in Israel? Um, not that I am aware of, because there was no need for it. They didn't need to contribute to political campaigns in Israel. Israel willingly volunteered to welcome the Chinese. We invited them. It, there was no need for the Chinese to, to lubricate their way into, the, into Israeli politics or Israeli economy. We invited them. I think the Chinese were surprised that it, it, it was such an easy uh, ride. So maybe now when there is a growing pressure on the government, there is a, dis a discourse in the public, maybe now they'll, uh, they'll, uh, you know, they'll return to their old ways of uh, talking, of, 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 of being friendly to politicians, giving money to political campaigns and, and invite journalists to visit China. Although they, it's a sensitive issue for them because they don't want to see journalists in their country even if they are friendly to China. Uh, but they, they will do it. They will do it. But still, there is a strong lobby in Israel which doesn't, which doesn't need to be lubricated financially or otherwise. It's the high-tech uh, cyber lobby in Israel. They want to sell. And, and China is a huge market for them. I mean, because all the other markets have been already, in a way, exhausted. Uh, Israeli iTech is well known and cyber capabilities are well known in the world. They are selling it to, uh, you can sell iTech and, and cyber only to rich countries, uh, very advanced uh, nations. So we are having very good deals and uh, we have the European market, Southeast Asia markets like Singapore, uh, to a certain degree India. And, and Chinese is a huge market for these uh, high -tech, Israeli high-tech companies. And therefore, they are pushing the government. They are saying, we don't, don't regulate us, don't put restrictions on our export uh, licenses. Only a few weeks ago, actually, the government eased the restrictions on cryptology on selling high-tech uh, equipment which has to do with uh, deciphering and cryptology. Um, and I think the Americans are very unhappy about it. It doesn't mean they'll sell it to China, but these were the state-of-the-art Israeli developments, and which were sold to the Israeli military, Israeli intelligence, but it's not sufficient for these companies. They want to expand, so they're looking for external markets, and they put a pressure on the Minister of Defense. And speaking of high-tech communications, has Israel had made a decision for its 5G network? Is Huawei, Chinese company ZTE, will they be involved? Have they been excluded? Or is that decision not being made? It's, uh, it's still pending. A decision hasn't been made. We, are, we were almost on the verge of 
of buying it from China, of having G5 Chinese system. But suddenly, in the last year, year and a half, because of all these uh, questions raised, and uh, it became more uh, a greater public awareness. So the the government and the cellular companies under under pressure from the government uh, haven't made up their mind yet. Uh, yes, they want a Chinese system because it's the best. But on the other hand, it's very, very dangerous, especially with the, you know, the, what's going on between China and America and the arrest of the, of the, of that woman in Canada, the chairman or vice chairman of, of, of the company. Yossi Melman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, please send us your thoughts via Twitter at Aspie underscore org or leave a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll be back soon.